little seed. See what you can be. And don't hold your breath. Waiting on me. Oh, little seed. See what you can be. So, welcome everybody to our podcast. Thank you to our guest, Stefan Frisch, who's come out to speak to us this evening. So, Stefan, would you like to introduce yourself and let us know how you ended up in the, the research field that you're in, particularly how one goes from working in or studying mathematics to working on linguistics? Uh, yeah, I can, I can do that. Um, I think the transition from mathematics to linguistics was a combination of two things. Uh, one thing that was really frustrating about math was the idea of like this proof and the feeling that there's like one way that puzzle pieces are going to fall together to get the answer to your question. And the really cool thing about language is it's a mess. It's sloppy. So you can attack a problem in a lot of different ways. So my research looks both at more cognitive stuff having to do with the brain and what the brain knows as well as more physical stuff in articulation and uh, you know how you move things when you when you actually talk and so how did you end up working at USF and studying what you're doing right now it was a fairly torturous route uh, after I got my PhD I was a postdoc researcher for a couple of years in a psychology department speech lab that was a very interdisciplinary place, so it was a cool place to work. There were people from linguistics there, from cognitive psychology, and also from speech and hearing sciences, which is more of an applied side to speech and language. So I did a little research there uh, that was a little more applied, and that broadened the number of places I could apply to for jobs, basically. So the department I'm in at USF is Communication Sciences and Disorders. So even though I'm not a clinical person, I don't have clinical certification, they do need people to sort of teach, you know, the basics of how speech and language works before you get into how speech and language breaks down. So that's that's what I was hired to do, and then, you know, my career has kind of evolved since there. Um, can you explain to us why English does not have any words that start with ng, so ng? Uh, that just happens to be a random thing that English doesn't do. Uh, there's no particular like obvious principle to it there are plenty of other languages that do that but it's a nice example to introduce the idea of what are called phonotactics which is sound patterns in language that are systematic so it is for whatever reason uh, this is a gap that English has where things don't start with ng which is generally spelled ng there are some other ones that are a little subtler so we have lots of uh words with sla at the beginning of them, S-L, but we don't have any with sra, S-R. Plenty of other languages do that. So again, that's another one where there doesn't seem like there's a really great reason English doesn't do that, but each language has its own set of patterns. When we look at lots of languages, which is what linguists do, uh, at least the kind of linguist that I am, you start to see commonalities across languages. So when you look at a whole bunch of languages, you would probably find something like words starting with ing. Plenty of languages do it. Some languages don't. Compared to something like n, n, uh, a much more common sound, it's going to be much more likely that every language is going to use that at the beginning of a word. So there are some, some implicational relationships or some patterns 
that connect up to, to things like that. Uh, another one for English that's harder to use as an example is English words don't end in H. They do in spelling, but they don't in the H sound. So you study languages, but do you study more than just English? I have studied other languages, so I'm, I'm vaguely famous for studying the lexicon of Arabic, so looking at the dictionary of words of Arabic, um, which has a really interesting different structure from English. So we make complex words in English by having some sort of stem or root. We add prefixes and suffixes to it. In Arabic, they have these uh, groups of related words that are sets of consonants, and different vowels get inserted to give you different derivations. So like read versus book, one being a verb and one being a noun, is the same consonants, um, but different vowels inserted in between them. So it's a whole different kind of morphological system. Morphological system being the way words are built. So I studied that for my dissertation because of that heavily consonant-oriented lexicon. It was a good place to study sound patterns across consonants. What I tried to show was that the language's set of words had been shaped by what's easier versus harder to hear, say, and process. Some of that gets into some of the idiosyncrasies of what linguistics is as a theory. So uh, Noam Chomsky is kind of the father of modern American linguistics, and he had a very symbolic logic sort of approach to linguistics. So traditional linguistics ignored a whole bunch of stuff from uh, psychology uh, and cognition, like that the frequency of things would matter, so some things being more common than others. Um, so another thing I tried to argue was that, that we could learn something from what patterns are more common than others, statistically. So you say you study the structure of patterns and try and figure out how that kind of relates to what happens in our brain. How do you study what happens in the brain? Yeah, studying what happens in the brain is tricky. For me personally, it's been looking at people's behavior and, and trying to deduce it from that. I sometimes do experiments where I just have novel words, things that don't exist in the language, like sishup or sirisinin and ask people how much does that sound like it could be a word in English. Um, some of the most interesting variants of that that I've done recently were with some PhD students, one of whom was really interested in bilingual language learning. So she created these synthesized words and had a little story for kids where these uh, English-speaking robots and Spanish-speaking robots were all together at a conference and then they got all mixed up and the kids had to figure out which were the Spanish-speaking robots and which were the English-speaking robots just on the basis of them saying these robotic nonsense words. So, And that showed that, that kids that were five or six, I think it was, can already sort language on the basis of these statistical patterns that different languages have. So even though English and Spanish have a lot of the same sounds in them, the frequencies which with those sounds are used uh, differs between the languages and kids can use that to sort what thing is a Spanishy thing and what thing is an Englishy thing <laughs> which is uh, it was a really cool experiment it took a lot of work because there's also an, in, in like in English versus Spanish the way you make consonants are different so if you were to just use regular speech it's obvious which thing is English and which thing is Spanish because English 
stops are more aspirated than Spanish stops. There's more sort of released to something like a t in English than there is in Spanish. So we had to, you know, come up with this whole scenario of these robots where you wouldn't necessarily expect them to sound as natural as people. Um, and uh, use some pretty fancy speech manipulation techniques. She recorded bilinguals saying the same non-words as though they were English and as though they were Spanish and then did kind of like a, a more for a blend of those two things together to create a hybrid Englishy Spanishy word, you know, kind of like you've seen those blend pictures where they take a 50-50 mix. It's basically the same thing, but doing that digitally with sound to create these kind of ambiguous Spanishy, Englishy word things for the kids to process. Saying something like Englishy is, yeah. is that something that's inherent to the English language? We do it a lot. Well, I think every language has its, has its things that make it what it is. And so I don't know what you want to call that. Um, you know, there's various, there's various technical terms, but I've been teaching for a while, so I've managed to come up with ways to talk about that. So Englishiness. I guess I'm also, I'm a linguist, so I'm really amused by things like morphology. You know, creating a word like Englishiness. Um, First week of class when I'm talking about language science for students, do all kinds of examples of, you know, how is it you know these things about language? If you ask anybody how you make a plural in English, they'll say add an S. That's not true. You add an S or a Z or an uz sound depending on the ending sound in the word. So dogs, cats, and crickets. Um, and again, experiments have been done with kids with these. So they take a little stuffed toy and they say, you know, this is a dax. Oh, now there's two of them. What are they? And little kids will say they're daxes. So they'll put that uz on there rather than just add an s like you're taught in school. So lots of rules like that in language that you were never taught in school. There may be a rule similar to it that you were taught that's wrong, that doesn't really reflect the speech patterns of the language. So that's the stuff linguists are interested in not just within one language and within one person's brain and how that works, but also across all the languages, how are different languages similar to each other, and what does that tell us about how human cognition works? So English and um, my mother tongue, Punjabi, they're very, very different. So I have kind of an advantage in the, the sounds that I can form. But there are some of them that I just cannot, no matter how hard I try, they just don't come out right. Do you think there's some sort of muscle memory with the languages that you learn that help you pronounce? There are definitely very specific patterns for how like the sounds of a language are supposed to be produced. Um, there's some interesting research that was done with um, French-English bilinguals in Canada, um, and Canadians in general, because you can get a nice mix of monolinguals, both English and French, as well as bilinguals that are dominant in one or the other. Uh, and that study showed kind of a mix so the the English monolinguals and the French monolinguals would be very English or French in what they would do and the bilinguals would be a little more a little more of a slush or a little more of a mix so there wasn't a specific muscle memory for like two different t sounds between the two languages they used one that was kind of in between their two options um I'm guessing that's going to be really specific though to particular sounds and the the cues or the contrasts or the the pieces of acoustics the pieces of sound that you create that indicate to somebody what that sound is so that's really going to depend for something like a for something like a tut it's pretty distinct in a lot of ways for something really squishy like an er or an ol sound that's going to be a lot harder Japanese has one sound kind of in between L and R that's a little bit like what Americans have in the middle of something like butter, uh-huh. which is called a flap, which you don't have so much because of your particular <laughs> brand of English. Say things like Twitter. 
So they have something flappy that's kind of in between those two, so they have a heck of a time dealing with the distinction between L and R. There's a pretty good body of research on second language learning um, that shows that kind of thing. So, you know, kind of obviously stuff that's really similar to stuff you have in your language, you're pretty good with. Something that's really different from anything you have in your language, you're also pretty good with because there isn't anything getting in the way. But stuff that's like what you have in your language but is supposed to be different is going to screw you up. So while we were looking you up, we noticed you had a YouTube channel and you have this kind of curious set of videos. For for teaching purposes, to get students to understand how complex articulation is, I managed to cobble together various pieces of equipment. Um, So I have an ultrasound machine in my lab, which... Uh, If you put the ultrasound probe under the chin, it will image up into the mouth, and you can see the tongue moving around while somebody talks. You can point a video camera at the face, and you can watch the lips move. For clinical purposes, they have this thing called a nasoendoscope, which is basically a fiber-optic camera that you can thread through the nose to hang down the back of the the throat and look down at what's called the larynx, which on men is behind the Adam's apple. The, the woman who did it to me, who's a clinician in this uh, area, had this this really long Q-tip that she put a little numbing formula on to stick in so that the place where it has to go around the corner. It got a little irritating after maybe 40 minutes of recording. When you do it clinically, you don't usually leave the thing in there for that long. It was worse for her because she had to like hold this camera that was sticking out of my nose. But it gives you some idea of what uh, the larynx is doing. So this particular set of videos that are on my YouTube channel... Um, have the lips, the tongue on ultrasound, and then the larynx through nasoendoscope for me just saying a bunch of words with all the different speech sounds in English in it. So students who are are studying the different ways English phonemes are produced can see them as examples in words. And I threw a couple of other things up on that YouTube channel. So just using the ultrasound, I have a recording of a song. So there was a, uh, a student band at Indiana University called Monkey Puzzle that had a song called Tongue. So uh, once I had this ultrasound and was doing tongue research, I thought it would be funny to record somebody singing tongue while being ultrasounded so you can watch the tongue jumping around and doing all the things it does. Uh, And the other thing I just found on there recently is another nasoendoscope video that was done by a guy named Mal Webb, who's a beatboxer in Australia, who does all kinds of laryngeal and pharyngeal stuff with a nasoendoscope down there. So you can see how he does all these weird voices um, and other special sounds and whatever. So that's definitely worth So we also have some questions from our listeners and from our audience here. This is an email question from someone actually very French-sounding, Philip Belfler, who is in St. Petersburg. And he asks us, why hasn't anyone traced language backwards so we could see the evolution from as far back as that exercise would take us? People have, but it is a very speculative enterprise. It involves using ways we know for sure languages have changed and kind of trying to work backwards toward what the history of languages were. Uh, if you if you try Googling for things like Google for Proto-Indo-European, you will find people trying to talk about some ancestor language to all of the Indian and European languages that are related to each other within a within a family. Uh, and I think proto-world is the term that's used for like that one language that they all came from, if such a thing exists back in the day. Uh, along the same vein, he said, what's the relationship for uh, between the development of a spoken language and written symbols for a language? There are different kinds of symbol systems that have been used for languages. 
So uh, English and a lot of languages use an alphabet where in theory one letter is supposed to be one sound. But as soon as you start to look closely, that doesn't work at all. Um, you know, you ask a school kid, they're going to say we've got five vowels, A, E, I, O, U, sometimes Y. They're really more like 12 or 13 or maybe 14, depending on how you count the vowels in English, if you go around recording the vowel sounds of English. So we've got E and I and A and E and A and A and er and ah and ah and u and o and oo. And then there's also the diphthongs, I, ow, oi. So... That's, that's a whole bunch of vowels. Uh, they could each have their own letter, but they don't. Just because. Other languages, a uh, much more common writing system is to use a syllabary, where a whole syllable gets a system. So like Chinese writing, uh, one of the versions of writing Japanese, which uses Chinese characters, does that. Uh, Native American languages have some syllabaries that were developed with them. I think, for the most part, the writing system reflects some constant in the language. So for something like Spanish, it represents the sound of the language pretty well. For something like English, the best description of the writing system is that it's based on the morphology. So for something like electric versus electricity, there's a sound change, but you spell that root electric the same way in both cases. Or the example of the plural, we spell it with an S generally, but it can be a S sound or it can be a Z sound. So the, that morpheme, that piece of sound meaning connection, uh, which is a pretty important linguistic unit, is consistently spelled in English, even though the sounds are sometimes pronounced differently. And he had one last question, which was, uh, assuming vowels or grunts came first, uh, what was the Im- impetus for consonants? Heck if I know. I think there are a couple of things that are talked about there. One is in the evolution of the species... At some point, the larynx, which is the sound-generating part of the speech process. So you, you push air out through your lungs. Um, that goes past your larynx, which is a, a, a pair of membranes that you put in the way of the airstream that the airstream causes to vibrate. And then that vibration gets shaped by your vocal tract. So you move your tongue and your jaw Um, to create like a resonating tube for the sound created by the larynx. There is a a theory of speech production out there that basically says you have two streams of sound that you're creating at the same time, so you go from vowel to vowel to vowel, and the consonants kind of interrupt that, almost like punctuation. So you could look at it as an innovation of you know, going from one stream of information to two streams of information so you can transmit information that much faster. And I always wondered if words like mum and dad or, you know, in a lot of languages, papa or baba is just because those are the first things that we start to articulate with our mouths. So if you open your mouth and a sound comes out, it's more likely to be ma than anything else. For things like ma or papa, they use the lips, which you can actually see. So kids learn those sounds earlier when they learn language compared to other sounds because they're visible. So that's probably why a lot of those basic words use those sounds. Because with everything else, with everything that's behind the lips, it's a guess as to what's going on. Question here from Jill, who asks, have you applied any of these ideas to animal sounds? Are there any complex languages in animals, like birds, for instance? There are definitely complex uh, sound systems that birds create. Taking the jump to language is that's like a technical thing for linguists. I do know some interesting factoids about birds. There are birds that um, 
sing a really very exact repetition of the same song over and over again, and there are birds that are much more creative, so kind of like I can make up words like Englishy, they can make up songs by combining together different notes that are in their repertoire so that they don't just sing the same song over and over and over again. Um, all that's really focused on sound, though. Something that's really important to linguists about language is the idea that the sound is associated with a particular meaning and that that meaning can get really, really complicated. The extent to which birds are doing that, I don't really know. I'm a very animal empath person. I think my dog is definitely trying to tell me things. Um, so I don't see why I would say birds aren't, aren't smart enough to be doing that. In fact, I just saw a video the other day of a bird that was using something like a coaster to slide in the snow down a roof, like over and over and over again. So the idea that a bird is doing this for play, I mean, that seems very cognitive and abstract to me, and like using a tool to do that. And as, you know, dolphins and whales and things like that that we know have really complicated brains and can make really complicated sounds... I wouldn't want to not call that language. This particular question was from Arturo on made-up languages, i.e. Elvish, Esperanto, and Klingon. Can't really explain any of them, but I can (laughs) sling out some facts like Tolkien was a linguist. He was an academic linguist, so that's kind of where the Elvish thing came from. He used a lot of his, his knowledge. And Klingon was created by a linguist in California. I should probably know who that is, but uh, but I don't. But it was it was created by somebody who knows things about language and things about language structure. Elvish is probably a good example for me to use for this idea of phonotactics, this idea of languages having particular sound patterns, because like the, the Elvish words are going to be much more liquidy and flowy and like the orc orc words are going to be really harsh and have nasty consonants in them and things like that so you can expect a lot of n's and l's and r's and things in elvish words and a lot of cuz and guz in orcish words i could talk more about klingon i know it's got really funky morphology where it's got (laughs) it's got agreement both with the subject and with the object on the verb so the verb is like doubly case marked for for both the who that is doing and the who that it is done to which isn't a really common thing for languages to do. So our friend Mike would like to know from you, what is your thought about learning languages via Rosetta Stone methods? I do not know too much about how Rosetta works, but I've been kind of curious. Um, There was a little research that was done at University of Washington in Seattle where they took young babies and they played audio of Chinese to them. Uh, They had TV with Chinese in it being played and they had graduate students who happened to be real people from China who spoke Chinese interact with the babies and the babies who interacted with real Chinese people speaking Chinese learned much better uh, stuff from Chinese than just exposure. So if the idea of Rosetta is to make it much more sort of live, applied, and interactive then it probably does work better than you know, this means this, this means this, this means this, sort of rote learning of things by association. Do you see particular patterns that could tell us how we'd speak uh, in, say, 100 years? Uh, you can do apparent time research. So you can look at old people now versus young people now and see some of the sound changes that are happening in the language. There's a pretty interesting study of the Queen of England because she does an annual recording each year. So somebody went through and analyzed how her speech has changed over time. 
Which is interesting because the, the British have this term, the Queen's English, where it's like, you know, it's supposed to be this thing, this standard that we all aspire to. But she's been tracking the sound changes that the regular people are having uh, over in England. Um, she's just, you know, not, not, not at the leading edge of sound changes, which tend to come from women rather than men. So women tend to be the sound change innovators compared to men. Um, so maybe that's a place to look. Uh, one last question, I think. Is there any innate part of language, or is it all learned or environmental? That depends on who you ask. Some people definitely think it's innate, and other people think it's definitely learned, and the truth is probably somewhere in between. You know, on the one hand, it seems like, how could you have language until you've been exposed to some stuff? On the other hand, we do have organs that develop in the absence of any sort of external stimulus, that tend to have a particular shape in people. So, you know, the innateness idea would be that there would be bits of brain that are just kind of there waiting for language uh, to move in. But that's not a fixed thing. Really young babies that have strokes that destroy the area where language usually develops, they will develop language somewhere else. It will, it will come about. It will find a different home. So there's some combination, I think, of nature and nurture that makes these things these things come about. I'd like to give you a little reminder and say thank you so much for joining us this Very evening. Very excited about the mug. I'm happy to know that Pint of Science exists. We love to talk us scientists. Thank you so much. Thank you. Look at what's to come And don't hold your breath Waiting on the sun lecturing to 150 mostly women and I do speech and language and phonetics so I'm talking about the components that make up the consonant P I say things like Englishy so without realizing it I say the penis of this thing comes from Everybody does because part of what you hear when you hear your own voice when you're within yourself is bone conduction through your jaw directly into your hearing system as opposed to through the air. What everybody else hears is only through the air, so then when you listen to your recording, it's the only through the air part, and it misses that cool, deep part that comes through bone conduction. You've just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, 
Or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. 